For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. I'm turning over the mic to the CSIS Global Food Security Program for today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Reset the Table podcast by the CSIS Global Food Security Program. I am your guest host for this episode, Kimberly Flowers. I'm an affiliate with the Global Food Security Program. And today I am super happy to be talking with Danielle Nirenberg. She is an author, an activist, a podcast host herself, but she's most known for being the co-founder and president of Food Tank, of which I'm sure she can tell us a bit more about So she's been working on solutions and talking about issues related to climate change, gender equity, and global hunger. But today I want to really pick her brain about technologies and thinking about what are the technologies that have the ability to really level the playing field for some of the inequalities that we see both here and abroad. So first, Danielle, for those that don't know, tell us what is Food Tank and what have you been up to lately? Thanks so much for having me on the show, Kimberly. It's so nice to be here. So Food Tank was started in 2013, and our mission is kind of a very simple one, where we were really founded to highlight stories of hope and success in food and agriculture systems, both domestically and internationally, and really shine a spotlight on the individuals and organizations and institutions, policymakers, businesses who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to make our food systems more economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable. We do this in a variety of ways. We have a very robust news website. We have a a newsletter that reaches about 300,000 folks across the globe, from farmers to chefs to regular eaters like you and me. We've in the past produced uh, reports where we came out with our first book a few years ago. We're working on a book about this idea of what it will take to prepare for other global shocks as, you know, we've experienced this pandemic. So during the pandemic, I interviewed hundreds of experts almost every day, twice a day sometimes for six or seven months, getting their thoughts on what was happening during the pandemic. And we've continued those live streams. It's been a lot of fun. It kept me from being anxious (laughs) during the pandemic to hear some stories of hope about what folks were doing. So that's what Food Tank is and does in sort of a nutshell. What I like about Food Tank, especially over the years, is, I mean, your summits have been great in the events that you organize, but also just the original writing and reporting that you guys put out on issues that are happening. I think that's also really interesting. When I looked at your website in preparation for this talk, I was thrilled to see your America Tour Food Tank Live, especially now that I work at a, at a college So can you just tell those, especially young people that are out there listening, what is the American tour and what are ways or other ways they could get engaged with the work that you do? 
Yeah, we want to do a 50-state tour over the next couple of years. We have academic partners in all 50 states and in Puerto Rico as well, and we want to really highlight the success of communities, not just during the pandemic, but the success of communities who have made strides in you know, regenerative agriculture or the role of youth in climate change resilience or how community activists have been able to bring sustainable and healthy food to communities that are often underserved. So with all of these academic partners. They're working with communities to pick themes and topics. And again, our job is really just to highlight these great endeavors that have been going on and get them a little bit more attention. We feel like when we shine a spotlight on some of these groups that it creates more potential for them to be known. It creates more potential for others to learn from them. And hopefully they get the investment that they need to keep scaling out and up in different ways. So let's talk about technology, technology that really matters. I mean, I think that term and and innovation especially is so broadly used and misunderstood or been used for a long time. I think just before we kind of get started, when you think about technology or innovative solutions, which I know is a broader term, what's the first things that sort of come to your mind in all the conversations that you have? There are a couple of things that I think about. One is that we've looked at technology in agriculture, you know, over the last 50 or 60 years as kind of a silver bullet, right? Like if we just had the right technologies that we could solve some of our most pressing environmental and agricultural challenges. And as any sort of sane person understands, this isn't the case right? There is no silver bullet. I think what interests me most about technology, to use your term, that really matters is this combination of what I kind of refer to as high and low technologies, combining machine learning with a practice that a farmer's been using for generations or using your cell phone as a processor in creative ways to learn more about markets or weather changes or pests that might impact your production down the line. So I think that's what really interests me. And then the other thing is there's been an issue for so long, and this is changing in small and big ways, that farmers have been the end users of technology when, in my opinion at least, and I think a lot of folks' opinion, they should be part of the process of developing technologies that will affect how they produce food from the very beginning. And I think there's a movement, however small, to have more participatory practices being sort of instilled from the very beginning. So it's not just guys in lab coats, you know, making things in labs that farmers are actually involved so that their needs are met. Yeah, I definitely haven't seen that as much over the years. When you were talking about the high-low technology, it reminded me, it's sort of outdated now, but I remember being in Bangladesh, it must have been, I don't know, three or four years ago, you know, looking at the efficiency of U.S.-funded food security and nutrition programs and saw farmers using an app, you know, on their phone where they would take a picture of what was happening with their plants if there was a disease and send it into basically the Ministry of Agriculture, who didn't have the capacity to get enough people out to the fields to talk to these farmers, but did have the capacity to look at the picture and say, here's what's wrong. Here's what you need to do. Go to your local agro dealer and get this. And it was really working and something that can be quite small. wasn't a super fancy app, but it worked. Is that an example of the high-low technology you're talking about? Absolutely. And what you brought up such an interesting point that in the absence of in-person extension services, which are declining in so many parts of the global south, the farmers don't have as much access to extension workers as they need. If they can like contact an extension worker, contact a government agency or a nonprofit working on these issues, can you identify if this is a crop disease or do I have to worry or what are weather patterns? That's really helpful to people. And as cell phone use continues to grow and smartphone use 
continues to grow around the globe and these mini computers become more accessible to a wider range of people. I mean, I think that's really exciting. It, it eliminates that absence of education that farmers have really needed and need to rely on more. When I was thinking about our conversation, I always like to kind of look back. We've seen changes, right? Of the two decades of our work, we've seen shifts. But I kind of like to think back and be like, okay, what's really shifted over the last 50 years? But certainly in the last 10, 20 years, the use of smartphones and social media and those kinds of platforms have fundamentally shifted the way we live, work, behave across the board on everything. So and we can talk more about that if you want. But what I'm thinking, and I don't know if you know an answer to this, but what is the next thing? I think it's because I'm a new mom now, but what is it that my daughter 20 years from now in terms of how she eats and what she buys foods. Do you see something in the work that you do that you think is going to be that fundamental as far as shifting the market in the next 20 years? I mean, I think for those of us in the global north and your daughter and my stepkids, right? I think the ideas around personalized nutrition and using technology to really figure out what individuals need, that's very first world and that's not something that's going to help solve hunger. But I think we're going to see massive changes and how things are marketed using technology, how we ourselves as individual eaters use technology to figure out what will serve us best in terms of health and nutrition and deliciousness. So I think that's going to be a fundamental shift. If we're going to talk about what's happening in in the global south, I heard something very interesting recently. My husband, who's an agricultural economist, he's in Malawi right now, and he was talking to folks about closed and because especially in the early parts of the pandemic people couldn't go to the market they couldn't go to small stores or they lived in urban areas to grocery stores food delivery of produce and other things became very important in in Malawi especially the long way people were using social media groups whether it was WhatsApp or Facebook to say hey I have a kilo of tomatoes does anyone want it and having those purchases made through social media I don't think those of us understand how regular people are using social media to sell things and keep themselves fed. And I think that's very interesting. I don't know how that will grow given the problems we see with a lot of social media companies right now, but I I think there's something there that I can't quite figure out. But I think it's very interesting how people have responded and used technology over the last, you know, 19 months of this pandemic. The testimony on the Hill related to Facebook, there was a Facebook outage. But what I didn't think about, I didn't realize that that included WhatsApp. I didn't realize how connected all that was and that businesses were shut down predominantly in other countries, of course, that can't do transactions or their way they do transactions is through WhatsApp. And so I think we're starting to see more and more how deeply embedded and interconnected these platforms are and how highly dependent we are upon them to make our systems go. So that's going to be interesting. What I also wanted to ask you was, we know kind of what's out there. We we talk about technologies, a lot of times it's hybrid seeds or, you know, there's a lot of cool, really interesting technology stuff that's happening. I'm curious if you are in the know on anything that's upcoming that we don't talk about enough. For a while, it was like, ooh, 3D printers, is that going to be making food? Are there stuff that you hear people talk about that you kind of think, ooh, this could be the next great big thing, but no one's really talking about it much? No, because I think the next great big thing is what I mentioned before. I think the next big thing is farmers in control of how technology is developed and farmers in the driver's seat on all of this, because there are some cool technologies out there, right? Whether it's using drones to, to monitor crops or to monitor livestock. I think being able to monitor animal health like herd dog 
does and other apps companies or how they're using apps to track animal health is very, very interesting, especially at big operations. But I think we can talk about those weather apps that I mentioned before so farmers know in advance if something's coming or ways to monitor pests. All of these things that are very nerdy and cool, I think it's really what's going to happen is that all of this technology will be democratized. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think it's going to take a long time for civil society and farmers organizations to make that happen and all of us as well. But I think that's where we need to go with all of this. Let's dive into that a little more as far as like farmers being a part of the process. If you are a researcher or a private sector person working on technologies, what advice would you give them? how to get farmers engaged, because especially American farmers, they're struggling. They're aging out. It's hard to make money. It's a tough field. What would you advise to predominantly the private sector? What steps should they be taking that they're not of how to really change the process and get farmers engaged? I mean, I think a lot of this has to really happen at the ground level. You need to go to these communities and start talking to farmers organizations or like reaching out even to the Farm Bureau. And that's for bigger farmers. I mean, a lot of the tech that's out there is already benefiting big farms in the United States, bigger, medium-sized farms, and that's fine. I think there's other technologies that will help small farmers do different things. But I think that you really have to make an effort and you have to want to do it. And I don't see the startup community really wanting farmer input at this point. They're interested in profit and selling to a bigger company right now. That kind of process of innovation, I think, really needs to change. We have to decide really what we want here. Technologists. This is their job. They have to decide what kind of food system do they want to see. And if they're really interested in making it environmentally, economically, socially sustainable, then you have to talk to farmers first. Yeah, I'm thinking back now, and I won't name any specific, but I can think back of my time at CSI specifically, where I went to so many different conferences, events, or summits, whatever you want to call them, but where where you're talking about this stuff, but there's never a farmer in the room, even. Or you have one farmer who's like kind of a face that's a, of an association, but doesn't always necessarily represent or not even a real farmer themselves sometimes. It's so frustrating to me. Often I've been put on stage to represent farmers. And I always say there should be a farmer here. I don't know why I'm speaking for farmers as someone who is not a farmer. I've worked on farms, but like I'm not a farmer. And so it is very frustrating. Farmers have to be the part of every discussion. The UN Food System Summit happened recently, and that was a major criticism that there weren't enough farmers participating in this process. I do think that there was an effort made to include youth and women and and farmers more than other conferences have in the past, but we really need farmers at every discussion. We did a podcast with Agnes Kilabata, who I'm sure you know, and it was very much about the summit and right after the summit. And I know you were quite engaged in that as well. First, I want to hear your thoughts on these big UN things where when you look at the summit itself, which I watched a lot of it and I've read a lot about it, so many people were included, right? I mean, it was so inclusive and so large and so grand and so many commitments made that sometimes I think, okay, is this going to make any difference? It was so much work and effort, but is it a lot of talk? And like, how are we going to really keep these people accountable? And will it really change food systems? And I'm not even a cynical person, but I just know what a massive task that is. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts a little bit in the sense of how effective you think something like that is. And were there any commitments or do you think it's really going to shift the way food systems are structured, delivered, all the above? 
I mean, it's such a good question, and I don't know if I'm the right person to answer it. I do think there's too much talk and not enough action, specifically not enough action on the idea of urgency that we are now facing as a global community. We can talk about these things as much as we want at global conferences or at food tank summits, but until we understand the urgency of the action that is needed to save not just our food and agriculture systems, but to save ourselves from what I think is the biggest threat and many others do too, is the climate crisis. We really need to take action. We had a chance to do this slowly 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Now we have to take action. Again, if we're really concerned about saving ourselves from kind of a terrible world, then we need to begin the process of taking action as we're talking, breaking down silos, getting folks to understand the importance of our food systems to everything that is happening, all of the multiple crises we're facing, whether it's the health crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, the inequity crisis, the misogyny and sexism crisis, racial inequity, all of these things are linked. And if we can fix food, we can fix a lot of these things. Yeah. So two thoughts on that, which are two big thoughts. But the first one is let's go back to technology and let's think about what are the technologies that are working on climate crisis the best? What are addressing the climate crisis? What are some technologies that we should be aware of or be using or things that should be praised, you know, highlighting some some good things there? And then let's go back to the question I posed at the beginning of how can technology be used to sort of level inequities. There's a lot of different inequities we could talk about there, but just the inequities that are on your radar. I think we have a lot of great technology on mitigation, right? To, To help farmers handle the impacts of climate change better or to help companies handle supply chain disruptions because of climate change or weather disruptions or those kinds of things. I think we're good on the mitigation side of technology. What we're not so good at, unless it's coming from civil society and nonprofits, is how you prevent greenhouse gas emissions. So I can think of multiple apps and technologies and ways people are thinking about food loss and food waste and to recover food or upcycle ingredients. That is all happening in a really creative way. And a lot of it's coming from the private sector, which is really encouraging after I sort of dissed them before. But I think you have all these companies who are really interested in upcycling in ways that are really effective. Or there's a company called Do Good Foods that's using the waste out of grocery retailers in the United States and making it into chicken feed. And so you'll have chicken that has lower greenhouse gas emissions from their production process. That's really exciting to me. So I think those kinds of things are happening in a big way. But again, a lot of that is not coming from research institutions or governments. It's coming from the private sector. And and we have to think about how we make policies that are easier for companies to innovate in creative ways like that so that they're doing the right thing. It's not like how companies have sort of been allowed to create so many greenhouse gas emissions for so long and not pay for it. These companies also need the same sort of incentives, the policy incentives to do the right thing. But broadly, what do you think about when you think of inequalities and technology? Is there any that sort of marries or that you think are good examples to think through? Well, I mean, I think it's like people who live under food apartheid and you call it food desert. Other people call it food swamps. I've learned from farmers and activists like Karen Washington She started Rise and Root Farm in the Bronx. She's also a farmer in the Hudson Valley with a group of really cool women. And she's part of the Black Agricultural Fund, which is helping Black farmers across the United States get resources and funding to either start farms or continue farming. I think food apartheid 
is a more all-encompassing term because deserts are rich with abundance, right? And we kind of forget that. And it's not a policy that made them a desert. What we have around food apartheid is there were policies in place that made communities have a lack of access to healthy, sustainable, delicious food. These were policies enacted by local governments at some point, like, oh, we're not going to have a grocery store here. We're not going to have farmer's market here. So it's the system of food apartheid. And whether technology can change that, I think organizing that happens in these communities they have the resources intellectually and practically to create abundance in their communities. What they need is investment. And if technology can spur that investment, if they start a campaign on social media or if they've been able to collect and, and do surveys of what's available in their communities using their tablets or smartphones or something, I think that can be a way to encourage investment, which is what's really needed. These communities know how to help themselves. They don't need me or any other white person to come in and tell them what to do, right? They already know what to do. What they need is the investment. So if technology can spur that investment, I think we can help level the playing field at the very least in different ways. And then on the gender side, what we were talking about before, I think cell phones have leveled the playing field for women and non-binary folks in a lot of ways, because if you're using a smartphone or a cell phone to get information, nobody knows what you look like on the other side. I think women have been able to get payments on their phones in probably ways they would never have been able to before because financial institution would have said, well, we need your father or your brother or your husband, you know? So I think online payments and cell phone payments may help women. I hope so. Thank you for teaching me about food apartheid. That's a much better way to describe it. You know, as we start to wrap up, I think it's because I work with college students now, but also even in DC, I worked with a lot of young professionals and there's so many that are so passionate about climate justice, about food justice, and just social justice issues in general. And I think someone like you could give just some really good career advice to someone who cares about these topics so much, but kind of doesn't know where to start, especially as being an activist or doing it as a career and what advice do you give them? Learning as much as you can about the particular issue you're passionate about and then getting involved and whether that's through interning or volunteering. I think one of the best things that I have ever did as a, a college and graduate student is just put myself out there. I asked everyone I could think of when I was interning in DC at different points in both undergrad and graduate school if I could have informational interviews and I made so many connections there is somebody who I met who used to be at the World Resources Institute who I am friends with to this day because I did an informational interview with him when I was very young and so those kinds of connections that go on throughout your life you can't even imagine how significant they are but it's just sort of like hi my name is such and such and people remember especially as you grow throughout your career. And it's kind of astounding, especially in places like New York or DC or San Francisco. So making those connections, I think is just really important in getting to know whatever community you're in and reaching out to folks you think are like-minded because those connections will help you 20 years later when you don't even realize it. Or this is one advice too, if I can add to that, you keep doing those throughout your career, right? So it's sort of like becomes, do you want to have coffee? But the truth is you are doing an informational interview with people in your industry or even outside of it to continue to learn and grow and see what other people do. 
We may call it something different as as we move along in our career. But if you don't continue building those kinds of relationships, you're not going to grow yourself or think about like what's next or other opportunities aren't going to come your way. So as scary as it is when you're in your early 20s and cold calling or emailing someone for an informational interview, you still got to kind of keep doing that. And I love that you said people outside your field talk to others who are not like-minded, right? Who have really different opinions and learn from them. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. Danielle, it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you again. And I just really admire the work that you do and, and the changes that I see Food Tank make over the years as it shifts and sort of morphs into all of these different ways to reach people. As you continue to highlight the success of both individuals and businesses doing great work as we try our best to make food systems more sustainable for all. Thank you so much, Danielle. Any other final words you want to leave with our listeners? No, I just want to thank you for all of your work. You've just been such an amazing leader and I think a mentor to so many folks. So thank you for what you're doing. All right. Thank you, everyone. And tune in next time for the next podcast of Reset the Table. Take care. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.